Super. Um, this book, this series really matters. I don't know if you saw Paul's tone, Lanx's tone last week. If you do keep these open if you've got them. If you've, if you've read many of Paul's letters, um, and you may want to go back and do this, you'll see they, nearly everyone starts in a very similar pattern, don't they? Warm greetings, um, prayer, thanksgiving, and then probably at the start of chapter two, he starts getting into a bit more teaching, a bit more correction. Here, uh, takes him five verses, a little bit of a warm-up, and then I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. I'm astonished. So, so we need to keep listening. We need to listen up. We need to listen to what Paul has said in Galatians, whether it's our first time ever in church, ever hearing about the grace of the gospel, or whether we've been around for years. Because God in his infinite wisdom, he's given us this book called Galatians. And we're all in massive danger of, of believing and actively living out a false gospel as he warns us there. This wasn't just for the guys 2,000 years ago. God has given this to us now. Uh, and ultimately, if we get this slightly wrong, a few degrees off, uh, and it can be deadly, it'll strip us all of our joy, all of our assurance. It'll strip us of the true gospel. In uh, 1979, there was a passenger jet, that one there, left New Zealand, carried 257 people to go sightseeing in Antarctica. Um, unknown to the pilots, there was a, a minor uh, two-degree error in the coordinates they were given. That the plane arrived over Antarctica. It was 28 miles east of where they thought they were. The, the plane got lower and lower. It was looking to land. Uh, and the pilots, whilst experienced, had no way of knowing that the incorrect coordinates placed them directly in the path of Mount Erebus. It's an active volcano. It rises uh, about 12,000 feet uh, above the ice. They crashed into the side of a volcano. They killed everyone on board. Two degrees. A minor error. A few degrees, but utterly deadly. Minor errors in the gospel matter, Paul wants to tell us here, both in what we believe and in what we live out, because we live out what we believe. So it's right that we're ruthless as we think about this and we work out where in our lives this could be an issue. So let's actively listen and look at what Paul's saying to us here at the start of chapter two. So it's important, firstly, we remind ourselves again, as Langs did last week, of the gospel, the gospel of grace. A perfect world created with God as king and lord of all. Then utter rebellion against that rule for all of us ever since. Just look at children if you don't believe me. We don't teach them to tantrum or be disobedient. I don't think Dunks has learnt to throw himself on the ground and roll around screaming when he has a tantrum from me. All of us from birth are broken, rebels. We, we, we want to live life our own way, but this is the gospel. God in Christ comes, lives a perfect life dies and rises again he gives us his righteousness this is the it's called the great exchange and he gives us his righteousness we'll see more of it next week utterly united to christ we get his righteousness amazingly his perfection and he takes the wrath we deserve as sinners we get right he gets wrath and notice in all of that we are unbelievably passive in the whole process so all the glory and the honor goes to christ i don't know if any dads here have been in the room at the birth of a child? Uh, about six weeks ago I was. Uh, with a planned C-section, this is even more the case, like we had with Layla. Unbelievably passive. Uh, at one point I took a photo. I think that's the extent of what I contributed to that birth process. Maybe I weighed her, I think, at one point. Unbelievably passive in the process. 
More so times a thousand for someone coming to trust in Jesus. It's all of grace. In the whole Bible story, there is only one hero and that's God. This is the gospel of grace. And there's, there's two major dangers which Paul teaches us of, which we see in Galatians of how we mistake the gospel. Again, Lanks looked at last week as we summarise. Licence or legalism, two great perversions. Some of us might say just having faith in Christ just seems a little bit too easy. So our lives become Jesus plus. I'm, I'm going to do these things or I'm not going to do these things to justify myself, to make sure to feel better at my status with God. Well, Paul says you've already left the gospel if that's the case. That's no gospel at all because God did it all. Or license, on the other hand, you can hear the gospel of grace. It's awesome news and think, wow, I can now do what I want. And basically, if that's the case, then you're living as functioning as atheists. God's not there. In no way are you impacted by the gospel. Because both of those keep us at the centre of the universe. I don't know if you had the training on Wednesday nights. So a lot of you were with Andy Robinson. It was great as we look at gender and look at sexuality this week. But, but he said the key thing was to go right back to the beginning before we even deal with those questions. And there's only two ways to view the world. He said there's two basic approaches of how to do life. In, in our culture, the main way is that me and my desires are in centre stage, right at the centre. The universe is all about me, and I do what makes me feel good. I do what, what I want. And in our context here, both legalism, where we see we need to top up what God has done, or licence, where we do what we want, place us right at the centre. We, we do what we want because we want to feel good, and we think we know best about how to do that. The second way to live, the Christian way to live, tells us that life in the universe is about recognising that I'm a creature who's been made in the image of God, who is saved alone by God. With God at the centre, we find life. And the gospel of grace has God firmly at the centre, the only active ingredient in our salvation. But here's the delight, because we know we get it wrong, whether we actively live in the way the culture tells us to or we slip into that way often as we do god wants to and is pleased to correct us paul who wrote this letter can beat us all in both license and legalism he trumps us in both of these he was the most ardent jew we find out the best follower of the law every iota of the law he followed but he was also the murderer and persecutor of christians directly against god's commands Legalism and license in one man. So if you grew up in church, Christian parents, you were a good boy or girl, you go, great, I'm good, I'm sorted. He was better. If you grew up outside of it, if you're sitting here now feeling like I'm not worthy to be here, like you've messed up life in so many areas, well, Paul tops you on that as well. A murdering man. And yet, just look with me briefly at chapter 1, verse 15. What a glorious verse this is. But God who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me. So that my preaching among the Gentiles was pleased. God was pleased. He was delighted to save Paul. It pleases God to reveal our need for him and to save us by grace. What a joyous thing that is to hear today, maybe for you first time. He's pleased to do that. If you've, uh, been around the church a while, not this church, but church in general, you may have heard conversations around sort of Paul and Jesus put sort of against each other. People may say, I like Jesus's message, but I don't like Paul's. 
Jesus was a message of love, but Paul's... Mm. I remember preaching a few months ago around false teachers, and this is a major theme for them even today, as it is here in Galatia. Is Paul's gospel true? Is it life-giving? Is there a rift between what the apostles who heard the message directly from Jesus taught and what Paul taught? And that's where we are in chapter 2. So we summarise a little bit what we looked at in chapter 1. That's what we look at in chapter 2. Paul is going to show that his gospel is legitimate. It's the same one preached by the apostles and it's one of grace that brings freedom and it brings life. So let's walk through the passage. We'll go verse by verse. Here's verses one to three. First, firstly, notice with me, it's been 14 years. Well, that means that's 14 years of Paul preaching his gospel to uh, Gentiles, non-Jews around the Mediterranean, 14 years to them. 14 years without confirming it with others, without He's proving here his gospel is independent of the other apostles. That's important. 14 years of preaching this gospel of grace, of seeing sinners reconciled with God outside of Israel, saved by grace alone. But in those 14 years, what's happened is there's been a loud minority who are having a massive problem with Paul's gospel. Paul would preach grace. People would believe. And then what is often called the Judaizers would come and say, Great what Paul said. He got it kind of right. Let's give him 50% of it right. They'd say, yes, believe in Christ. We believe in Christ. But also, ultimately, we believe he's given us the law, which we have to follow now. That's how you're saved. So for them here, and we see it here in the it was Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus the dietary laws. Circumcision, the, the Old Testament mark of being a Jew. Uh, separated them from the other nations. The dietary laws, again, a mark which separated Israel from the other nations. And they're saying, well, we've followed that for 2,000 years. You need to keep following that. You have to keep following that. And Paul now, after 14 years of this happening, having written some letters, he then heads up to Jerusalem. And he heads up to Jerusalem to have this conversation with the apostles there. Not because he was summoned, You see it there. He he goes in response to a revelation from God. It wasn't like he was confused. Paul himself wasn't sort of doubting, am I preaching the right thing? Am I not preaching the right thing? He was going, no, no. He was summoned by God, basically, to go to Jerusalem, to have this conversation, because any might of disunity really matters. So important we get the gospel right. And the issue at hand here, the main complaint, is that God gave the law to Moses, and to us, and it's been followed for 2,000 years, is what was being said. So why, Paul, are you saying you don't have to follow it now? How can you say you don't need to be circumcised in this case? How can you say you don't need to follow the dietary laws? How can you say that the law has no bearing on our justification when it maybe seems like it has for a few thousand years? The leaders in Jerusalem, where Paul goes, they hadn't really been wrestling with these issues. They were still living amongst the Jews, so for them, it had been quite easy to say, yes, follow Jesus, but of course, eat kosher. That makes sense. But the key question was, did they need to? Did they have to do that in order to be saved? So Paul takes two people. He takes Barnabas with him, a fellow Jewish Christian. And he takes Titus, a Greek, bacon-loving, uncircumcised Christian. And you see what he was doing there? He brought Barnabas to say to the apostles in Jerusalem, look, this is Barnabas. He's followed the Jewish customs all of his life. Uh, we don't throw it out entirely. We don't say become a Christian and immediately break from the law. But he has the freedom to if he wants to. 
And Barnabas is a testimony of this. He's a testimony of the gospel I've been preaching. I take the law seriously in the right way. We're going to look at what that means in a minute. I take it seriously in the right way, but it's not bearing on my salvation. So that's why he takes Barnabas. But really, the clincher is he takes Titus. He brings Titus, who is a Gentile, a Greek, as it says here, not a Jew at all. And they undoubtedly, the, the apostles here, they speak to Titus and they confirm he's a Christian. They confirm he's a follower of Christ whose life has been completely rearranged by Jesus, who he saved. And they go, well, he's saved, but without circumcision. He's saved without putting himself under the law. And so here we see round one, Paul wins. Verse three, you see there. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. Because you see, the, as we've seen, the ceremonial cleanliness laws had all been fulfilled in Christ. Christ makes us clean. And so eating certain foods, the mark of circumcision and other ceremonial laws were not needed anymore. They aren't for us. And Titus shows us here that an, an individual becomes spiritually clean. He becomes acceptable, not through any external deeds or actions, but only through the grace of Christ, only through God's work internally in his heart. Now, this may seem so far removed from us here, however many thousand years later. Uh, I'm yet in, what was it, four years now of a church to have a conversation. We had lots of babies born. Nobody's come to me and said, Johnny, I think we need to circumcise my child. As in, you may have done so, but you've not done so to me. Thanks, and so I don't think you've had that either. We just haven't had that. No parent asked me they should. We have pizza quite a lot here. I had bacon on my pizza on Wednesday. The dietary laws were not following them. So these specific issues don't seem to face us now. But all of us still do want to replace grace with something. We're such danger of wanting to add to the work of Christ. Because it seems easier, doesn't it? To do something ourselves, to just make sure, to just top up. And we can catch ourselves, don't we? We, we can go, yes, I'm saved, but I feel rubbish because I've not read my Bible this week. I, am I really saved? I really struggle to pray. Don't hear me saying that not reading the Bible and prayer are wonderful means of grace. They are, but they're not things which save us. They're not things which affect our salvation. They don't make you a Christian. And verses four and five then unpacks this more for us. It says this matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ and to make us slaves. We did not get into them for a moment so the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. First of all, the title at the top there, the law. It's important we look at this now. We're going to look at it more later next week. But the law, we need to look at what the law is and what it isn't. The law is diagnostic. It's not a cure. As we said, there's two arguments which come against the gospel of grace. And they're still around today. People say if we preach the gospel and not law, then they're just going to be licensed. People will do what they want. When you remove guilt and damnation, if you say it's by grace alone, for faith alone, if you remove the fear of hell, people will not fly straight. They'll just do what they want. And the other argument comes, goes, oh, the law is holy, it's divine, it was given by God. And the law has been the guide for 2,000 years, two thousands of years before that, probably six millennia before that. And now Paul is saying the law doesn't justify you. And one answer solves both issues. And it's important we get this. The law is a wonderful gift. But we need it in its right place now. The law has every right to tell you, to tell me, that I must love God. 
love my neighbour. I must not worship things that are not God, but I should obey my parents unto the Lord. There's every right to reveal to me the way God has designed the world to be. But it has no way to save me from my inability to follow the law. The law shows us how to live, but it does not save. It's diagnostic. It's not a cure. Let me, let me explain. Let me illustrate. Um, I was meant to bring a lateral flow test with me, but I didn't, which is probably good. It'd be a waste at the moment. Um, but loads of us have done lateral flow tests, haven't we, in the last two years? I didn't have a clue what one was two years ago. Um, we've stuck them up our noses. We've stuck them up our children's noses. We've taken them to see if we've got COVID. We've taken them to try and get ourselves out of isolation if it's got to a certain time. But the only thing a lateral flow test does is tell you you've got a problem. That's all it does. With the new rules when you could be released after a certain time, it wasn't a lateral flow test which suddenly made you negative if you have been positive. It just told you the facts. It just showed you the reality. That the law is never going to cure you. It is holy, it is divine, but it's a diagnostic tool to let us know something is wrong primarily. And so many of us maybe fail to walk in the joy that Christ brings, the freedom as it's called here, because we keep going back to the diagnostic test and not to Jesus the cure. And the test, when we go back to it, if we live in it, it will always keep telling us we fall short, because we do. It'll tell us we're not good enough. It'll tell us we're not holy enough. It'll tell us we're not good enough for the goodness and mercy of Christ. It'll tell you that you keep walking again and again back to your sins. The law shows us we need healing, but Jesus is the cure. It's diagnostic, but Jesus is the cure. And this is the problem. These false believers were adding slavery to it. They weren't living in freedom, living in slavery, because they kept going, no, no, you need to keep following the law. You need to keep coming back to the law. And all it led them was not freedom, was just utter insecurity and devastation. To, to keep carrying the lateral flow illustration through, we saw at the gospel, the great exchange, Christ comes to live inside of us. Christ gives us his righteousness, takes the wrath we deserve. And we're going to see that next week. We're united to Christ, Christ in us and us in him. And because of him, the test is clear. Only because of him, the test is negative. We are clean and righteous because of him alone. That is why the Bible can say that we're seen as perfect, spotless and blameless if we trust in Christ. Only because we're in Christ. So when God looks at us, he doesn't see us. He sees Christ's perfection, Christ's spotlessness, Christ's blamelessness. So the law is holy and divine. But what happens is when you get the law is diagnostic and Jesus is the cure, then you're set free to pursue Christ because the diagnostic's not just telling you anymore that you're too sick and too nasty to come before him. As it says there, we've freedom. That's what they were, was at, at um, the main issue here. Freedom. It infiltrated our ranks to spend the freedom we have in Christ Jesus to make us slaves. Trusting in the gospel does not lead to license. It leads to freedom. It sets us free to pursue Christ, to follow Christ, to love him, to delight in him. Because we know he delights in us. Some of us probably don't pray and don't read our Bible very often because we think he's disappointed in us. You, you think he looks at you with a kind of a, a look of contempt and disgust and goes, I died for you? Really? And so that doesn't help us approach the throne of grace with confidence. It doesn't help us delight in the Lord. It doesn't fill our hearts with joy. It doesn't let us live with freedom because we keep going back to the law as, as diagnostic. And we go, yeah, I don't stack up. 
And if we stay there as opposed to going to Christ, then we have no freedom. It's just slavery. But the gospel of grace, the transforming work of the gospel, it makes us aware of the kindness, makes us aware of the utter grace and kindness of God. And that leads to repentance. And that leads to us then going, no, no, I want to look at the law, which tells me what it looks like to love my neighbour as myself, which tells me what it looks like to love my God with all my heart and all my soul. It gives me freedom to do that. It gives me freedom to see that the, the ceremonial law, the, the laws which looked at sort of how we can be right before God, which looked at Leviticus, if we looked at them a while ago, that we don't need them anymore because it's all done in Christ. Uh, the laws which separated Israel off from us was a pure nation because we don't need them anymore because there is no Jew or Greek. We are all one in Christ. And he's done it. He's paid the price already. But we can see the law for what it is, which can be a, a diagnostic. It, it shows us our need for a saviour, but it also shows us what it means to live truly and rightly. Let's keep going. Uh, and short as we skim through here. Verses five and six. We did not give in to them for a moment. This is Paul with the Jewish leaders, remember, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, this is he's talking later about James, Peter, John, the apostles. Whatever they were makes no difference to me. God doesn't show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. He's blunt, Paul, isn't he? But he's good. Don't give an inch. Paul says here, don't give an inch. Don't in any way believe that the law saves. Don't in any way stray from the gospel of grace. The apostles added nothing to my message. It's a wonderful assurance we read, Paul, that that debate of Jesus and Paul is a stupid debate. It's a wrong debate. They both preach grace. Then we get verses seven and eight. On the contrary, they recognised I'd been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. What he's saying here, he's saying that wherever the gospel may be preached, it's the same message, even as the context is different. There's no excuse for changing the message of the gospel. This is sort of cultural freedom. We're not all the same. We don't all have to be the same. Moralistic religion tends to force its followers into the same mould. You've got to live by very specific rules and regulations, very specific, very doable, very clear. But the gospel brings freedom, freedom to be who we've been made to be while still following the one gospel. Some of you will have done the same, but I've, I've spent time in a couple of countries. I've been to churches there in India, in Egypt, in, in Bible teaching, gospel loving churches. And the message is the same, whilst for context and application may have been very different. I've been in a church where two-hour sermons are the norm. That fits their context. Stop halfway through, have a song, have a drink, get going. That fits their context. We're not going to do that here, don't worry. I've been in a church with some Muslim background believers. They found it really helpful to, to pray together, led from the front, as they've been used to. And that is fine if they're not adding that to their salvation. If it's just a response of thanks and dependence of a father who saved them. And it's cultural. Many of you have been at church, well, all of you, uh, well, not all of you, but many of you have been at churches before you've come here to town church. Good churches. Think of Ebbs Headington, where I know a number of you were. The, the message of the gospel of grace, I know will have been the same, but the context, University City, more of a focus on Oxford Brooks around it, will be different in terms of how you apply it, how they do ministry. And that's fine. But the content of the gospel is the same, and that's all that's being said here. Same 
gospel, even if it's slightly tweaked message. Uh, the same message, sorry. Same gospel, even if it's a slightly tweaked to the audience. And in any church you go from here, but one thing I can say is make sure the content of the gospel is the same. It's grace and grace alone, only ever grace. Many churches in this country err towards license and legalism. Don't go there. Only go where the gospel of grace is going to be preached again and again and again. And then we get to verse 10. And I wonder when you read it, whether you thought, we're not going to look at that at all, or you thought, that's odd. They agreed we should go to the Gentiles and then to the circumcised. They to the circumcised. All they asked is that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I've been eager to do all along. It's a bit of an odd to this section, isn't it? Don't add anything to the gospel, but remember the poor. The Jerusalem leadership agreed nothing needs to be added to Paul's gospel. But the one thing they did ask was, and I wonder what you would have filled that blank in with if you hadn't read this. Here it is. Remember the poor, which I was very eager to do. I think the context helps here. This visit by Paul with Barnabas and Titus was to Jerusalem when they were in a time of famine. And Paul went with a very generous collection from a number of churches he'd worked with into the Gentile world. Christians had never met the Christians in Israel. They gave abundantly of the little they had to help those who were poor and suffering. And Paul and Barnabas and Titus were, were taking that offering to them. So where did this passion and priority come from, the apostles and Paul? It's striking that they bring this out. Well, I think for Paul, it, it flowed out of a heart that the gospel created in him. We see him right in 2 Corinthians. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. I think it's obvious a forgiven heart is a compassionate one. A gospel changed hard is a changed heart. We're going to see that in chapter 5. We look at the marks of someone changed by the gospel of grace. And here we specifically see the gospel causes us to confront our own poverty a poverty of spirit, potentially, and thus the poverty around us. We cannot come to Jesus, the gospel of grace shows us, unless we first recognise we're poor and needy. That is the only sort of response, the only sort of posture we have as we come to gospel grace. I need saving. I can't bring anything. I've got nothing to bring. I'm poor and needy. And so the gospel causes us to prioritise the poor by identifying with the poor. I think that's Paul's motivation for the original 12 apostles, the ones he's speaking with here. They not only had a new heart of compassion like Paul, but they had memories of how Jesus lived. How in Matthew 25, he says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. They remember these words of Jesus. They remember Zacchaeus who gives half his possessions to the poor. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. The evidence of salvation is practical financial compassion for the poor. I remember Jesus' words to the man who invited him to a feast. When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you. You'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. You see, that's a response of grace. But remember the start of Jesus' ministry when he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. There's many places we could go, but the point is the, the apostles were agreed on the importance of a ministry to the poor because it flows from the gospel. 
It flows from the gospel. It's not adding to the gospel. It doesn't save us. It doesn't make us feel better about ourselves. It doesn't make us a better Christian. It flows from the gospel. And it flows from Jesus because Jesus lived it out. It was part of the apostles' foundational ministry. So I assume that it should be crucial for the church today and for us here at Town Church. But it's foundational to their ministry. It should be for us. So I think it's a question. It's a challenging question for you. And then for us, more widely as a church, how are you caring for the poor? Individually, as families, how are you caring for the poor? Financially, in terms of time? I don't know, for some of you in this room, maybe it could look like moving into areas of more deprivation and going, I'm going to reach them with the gospel because they're poor of the spirit, but also I'm going to serve them with their needs as well physically. How are you caring for the poor? For, for us as a church, it's a, a question we wrestled with a little bit on Thursday. We had a Elder's Day away and we chatted about it, as we sometimes do. And I think it's worth letting you know there's a few ways we respond here. The money which many of you give to the church in obedience and worship and I think, by the way, that we can apply that here of keep doing that. It's an act of worship. Keep reviewing that. Remember that the law, whilst we're not under it, is a good guide. It shows us how to live. So the tithe of 10% of your income is a wise starting point. It only sets a starting point. At least on what God suggests, we can definitely live without. So review your giving if you need to. But the money you give to support the church, we don't just hoard it for ourselves and pay staff with it we do that but also we give away a good percentage of that to a number of things but with a particular focus here as we think about the poor there's a couple of things i want to pull out i think it's worth letting you know and asking you to pray about it and think about it we we deliberately when we give to a couple of partners overseas we give to das and will in india and albania they're both caring for the spiritually poor definitely but they're also both working directly in poverty relief in different ways in those countries it's important as we think through where we give our money to we're also right now looking at a proposal of how to partner directly both in finance and time with a small church in Cornwall. Cornwall, I don't know if you know, is one of the poorest counties in our country, both in terms of wealth and spiritually. And we know well a pastor there, Colin Wells, some of you remember me spoke at our first weekend away. We're looking at partnering and supporting them in their need out of the abundance which we feel we have. We're also actively looking then at ways to become more directly involved in our community here in Bicester. We've helped serve Syrian refugees coming over. We've given money and food to the food bank, clothes to the baby. There's many things we've done, but we'd love to be more intentional, more directly involved here. And I'm going to be in touch with a few of you to ask you to do some research for us as we look to serve and love those in our town better. If, if that interests you at all, before I come to people, unless you come and speak to me, speak to Society Flanks, we'd love, if you've got a heart for this, if you're going... Yeah, I'm convicted by this. I want to see how it can happen. Come speak to me. We'd love to think about this more intentionally in Bicester. We're aware we're, not in a, we're in a relatively commuterish middle-class town in some senses, but there's such need still. And we'd love to serve and love and, and apply this quite directly and not just have this as waffle talk from the front. It's a hard application, maybe, but it seems really clear here in Scripture. How are we caring for the poor? It's a commentary I was reading which had this clearly. A guy called Baker says, to forget the poor, this is blunt but i think it's correct to forget the poor is to drift from the gospel no matter how orthodox our theology is if we neglect the poor we miss what it means to be a truly gospel rooted church that's really challenging as we come to our fifth year there we go that's the start of chapter two so friends hold firm to the gospel the gospel of grace it is all of god we bring absolutely nothing 
to it. Because this gospel alone brings freedom. The law, it's a wonderful diagnostic tool. It wonderfully shows our need for a saviour and it wonderfully shows that we have one. The law also wonderfully shows us what it means to live as God's people. It, it shows us what it means to live with freedom if we have it in the right way around. It shows how best to live, how to live as free people. So let's go and live in light of this wonderful gospel of grace. Let me pray and we're going to sing in response. Father God, we thank you for the gospel of grace. We thank you that it brings freedom. Amazingly, outrageously, Lord, you love us and care for us and delight in us. You are pleased to save Paul, who is so far gone in human terms. And you are pleased to save each and every one of us. And your salvation brings freedom, Lord. We help us to live in freedom. Help us to, to cut out those areas where we're not living in freedom. Help us to make sure we preach to ourselves and to those around us, to our children if we have them, a gospel of grace. Because we're so easily able to err and to wander from that. We need your help. Thank you for Paul's diligence in striving to preserve the gospel of uh, grace. The truth of the gospel would help us keep helping us. We wrestle through his book of Galatians. Help us as a church wrestle with each other. Help us to apply it, Lord. Help us to apply it directly here, as we've seen in verse 10, in terms of how we care for the poor. That it's not just be words, but if you convict us in our hearts by your spirit, help it lead to action, we pray. We thank you and we praise you. Amen.